Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. This is our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling, and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. So on this week's exchange, we have a slice of house music history from Chicago's Mike Dunn. If you know Dunn's work, your mind will probably drift to tracks like So Let It Be House and Freaky MF. But beyond these classics, he has a long history of activity in the Chicago scene. His chat between Dunn and RA staff writer Matt McDermott is full of the sort of anecdotes that could only come from a true insider. As Matt mentions in his written intro to the interview, we should feel enormously grateful that guys like Dunn are still around to share their thoughts and feelings on the origins of this music. You can hear our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Mike Dunn is up next. exchange and you know it's a pleasure to have you it's an honor to have you on the podcast oh thank you man absolutely i mean you're bringing a lot of history to the table um i understand you grew up in the south side of chicago yes that was in uh the robert taylor complex and can you tell me a little bit about your musical life growing up like what was some of the first music you heard and you know in the neighborhood and i understand your mother was a pretty big influence in terms of records and music as well yeah yeah my dad had a wide a wide musical range he listened from anything from rock to jazz to blues to whatever it was it was you know i I just heard everything in the house but my mom was the one who would i would always go with her and she would go get the disco versions of songs like the 12 inches the extended mixes and, and things like that. So, you know, my dad, he went shopping alone and brought back whatever, and it was just, you know, like I said, we he was all over the place with music, you know, from Motown to Chick Corea to, you know, it, it, I heard everything in the house. So my mom, that's... I was a mama's boy, <laughs> to put it mildly. I was a mom's boy because I had five sisters, and I was the only boy and the eldest of them. But, you know, my mom always kept me around her. I guess but we would go shopping, and she would just, you know, the lady would pick out a stack of records, and, you know, she would ask what's new. She'd come back with it. she I like this. I don't like that. And then so... As a kid, you're watching that, but you're also, you know, as a kid, you're a sponge. So I was kind of taking all that in. I was like, yeah, I like, you know. After all these years, I can remember vividly just going in the store with her, you know, as a kid and picking out, you know, watching her pick records out and the type of record she wants. So she kind of instilled in me that disco feel. The stuff that she liked, 
my dad didn't like <laughs> like you know she was going to get the the Donna Summers and the, you know the uh, Nita War 12 inch ring my bell and all that so you know my mom liked the dancing yeah my dad was more just chill laid back he want to hear the music in it because we the only one in the you know the projects that really had a top-end system. We had, like, Bose 901 speakers, the ones that looked like the home plate that you put in the corner, had the eight tweeters in the back and the one in the front, and but it bass and we the Revoc, reel-to-reels. We had, you know, we the Sansui's and the Dynaco amps, and I can remember the steel dial. Oh, I wish I would have kept that. <laughs> but yeah, you know, we, we had the best system. We lived on the 13th floor. And if my dad turned it up halfway, you could hear it downstairs in the playground clear. I I, I went to, with him one time to this store, this high-end store that just sold, like, crazy amps and, and, and you know, turntables. He had the Gerard turntable, then he switched to the Thorn. That part of it, I got from him. But the musical aspect of it, I got from my mom. So it was kind of half and half, like the, the technical part of how things are supposed to sound, and I got from my dad, but my mom was, they she, she, she was the music programmer. <laughs> That's pretty interesting because so she was buying stuff like Tom Moulton edits and that sort of right. thing. And then so when you would hear, say, like a Ron Hardy edit, it already made right. sense to you, like right. what he was doing with the oh, song. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, you know, it was like second nature. When I first got into editing, it wasn't, you know, because that's the thing to say. Ron Hardy, oh, da, da, da. That, wasn't, that wasn't my case. For me... The person that made me want to edit was Mickey Mix and Oliver from the Hot Mix 5 because he would chop up records and do things with them that I was like, okay, how's he doing this? Like, I was interested in, like, Stars on 45, you know, the Big Apple edits and all the things like that. So I've been digging for ages, man. Since before you can remember, almost? Yeah. What was like, the first record that you picked out for yourself? It was Michael Jackson, and it was the Michael album. It had the Dear Michael on there, and uh, just one more. Yeah, so that, for me, was my first one, because that was the first thing that I could buy with my money. Like, the technical end, and this is what I, you know, like all the guys who came up under me and all the guys that still come to me, I'm more so into why it works this way, more so than turning it on and and go. I have to understand why the thing works the way that it works because then once you know that, you can basically do anything with it. So, like, for Christmas, my grandma bought me a... Back in the day, it was called a component set because it was just everything all in one. I took it apart before I even started playing with it. I, like, completely took the turntable up out of the thing, the needle off of it. And she was pretty pissed, called my dad, like, this boy then took... You know, so those are the things that I used to get, like, for Christmas. Chemistry sets and things. I could tell you some stories about my chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> what I used to catch in the house and dissect. <laughs> so other people that were growing up in Englewood, it was Tyree Cooper as well, and then Hugo right. Hutchinson. And as a trio, you know, you were producers sort of from a different part of town and almost lifelong friends, like, starting to learn about dance music together is that correct right. actually hugo was the one from a different area when my grandma used to stay with her brother because my my grandpa passed when i was like maybe two years old and when he passed 
her brother moved with her. So that was my uncle, my Uncle Steve. And when he passed, she was going to be in the house by herself. So they asked all the grandkids who wanted to go over there and stay with her. I chose to go over there and stay with her. So that's how I moved to Inglewood because we were actually living on 55th Southside at the time. And then, you know, we were gone from Robert Taylor's by the time that, you know, like my second year of high school, we were gone from Robert Taylor's. So I moved with my grandmother and she was in Inglewood. And then that's when I met Tyree and, and everybody like that. Hugo was from 43rd, he was over that way. How he and Tyree met is through KKC radio and doing parties like that. And then Ty would bring him around and then I got to meet Hugo. You know, we became friends through Tyree. And were you involved in the radio station as well? Where you were, be- this is sort of early mid '80s. You were beginning uh, to DJ right yeah, then. Yeah. Well, I've always been a street guy in the streets with it. Hugo was on KKC, and Tyree would do guest mixes. I ended up doing some guest mixes on there, but I would do this thing every week called the Courtyard. And at first we were doing it in like Ogden Park, which is on the south side in Inglewood. And we were doing things there. I was doing some DJing for my friend, King George. And he he couldn't mix, but he had all the equipment and everything. And and he saw me and how I was mixing. He was like, man, I want you to come play with me at parties and things like that. So that's basically how I started doing that, and we would do this thing every week called the Courtyard. And the Courtyard was actually the rec center of a church called St. Stephen's, and it was right across the street. So every week we did a party there. Well, Mr. Raven, Miss Raven, and we would do, you know, just never know where your blessings come from because that tuned me into being a resident DJ. So when, you know, I got to, like, the warehouse and things like that, I already knew how to play a whole night without running out of stuff to play. Like, most DJs, you know, now they don't have residencies. So they're basically hired to spend an hour, two hours. So they come in and play all the best stuff, and basically if it goes past two hours, some, not all, if it goes past two hours, then it gets kind of, it gets kind of shaky then. And what were those initial parties like? What what were you dropping then? A lot of the stuff that I was making. I mean, it's crazy. People call me today. I, you know, I do a radio show on uh, Soul. That's one of the other stations in Chicago. It's like we have two. Like one is the other station, and then it's us. <laughs> so. They called in, oh, Mike, I remember you, man. I remember you used to walk in the party with two reel-to-reels. And, and I know they're not lying because I used to walk in the party with two bags with two Pioneer 707s in the bag. So I was going from back to forth, from edit to my tracks, from edits to my, you know, we couldn't afford acetates and things like that back then. So... We were just putting the stuff on a cassette deck and bringing them in with the pitch. That's how it started at first for me. It was just the pitch decks. At first, it wasn't a pitch on the deck. It was just like, okay, speed the record up to where you know the track's going to be and then just bring the song in. But then when they started coming out with the pitch decks, then we pitch decking and then the real to reels came in last after we, you know, saw Frankie and, and, and Ronnie playing with the... Uh, the reels just much easier. It's just like a record, just rocking it back and forth and pausing it, boom, bringing it in. That's why our intros to tracks were so long when we were putting them out. Hmm. Is because we were making up the time that we could get the track in on a pitch deck, and then by the time we caught up and got it in, those eight beats would be, you know, those eight bars would be gone. 
And now you're bringing it in like you really want to bring it in. So that's why when you hear tracks and we got long intros and the kick just going for a long time and then it finally started coming in, that's why those things were done like that. You were making edits and you were making your own tracks, but was it more about rocking the party as a DJ? Were you thinking about making records at that point? Or were you thinking of yourself as a producer or these are just tools to get people moving? At first, it was just to make tracks, something to play on your own. Because, you know, you heard Frankie playing the Jamie Principle and the, you know, some tracks that Frankie was doing or some tracks that Craig Loftus was doing. Like, my thing was... I brought what the kids were too young to go downtown and hear and see and feel. I brought that into the neighborhood. And downtown sort of off the right. West Loop, that was right. where the clubs were, right. like, like in terms of the warehouse and the right. music box. And Is that? You, you had a different scene going at the right. time. Right. So my scene was basically for the kids, the high school kids and, you know, like, kids that could come outside and stay outside for a couple hours so it's pretty funny a lot of the music that you ended up making is pretty sort of sexed up stuff so it started mm -hmm. with like playing for teenagers who were maybe right. like kind of horny or something right. like oh that. yeah i was always on some horny <laughs> uh, everything that i was making was some freaky type stuff you know i had to dance your mother and and actually, you know, when Dance Your Mother came out, it was redone because that wasn't the original version of it. The original version was, excuse my French, y'all, but it was, it was going dance, you mother, you mother. But behind it, it was going dance, motherfucker, dance, 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 motherfucker, dance, 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 you know. So the one that you hear, or the one that came out on Westbrook Records, oh, I was so upset because I couldn't put out the raw version because I know that's the version everybody wanted. Bam wanted it more polished and reverbs and put the acid and the things and stuff behind that, and I, I was fighting that. I was like, okay, you can do whatever you want to do. Just give me a version, and that's how it had all that big reverb and stuff on the kick. I mean, on one track that he did, that that turned out good. But Dance Mother, I just wanted it really, I wanted it raw in its rawest essence, just in its truest form. I, I, I didn't want to touch it, it'd be, you know, because a lot of stuff, as a DJ, I know I act like a producer, but I think like a DJ. So my thing was, that a lot of the stuff that came out, us as DJs that were waiting years and years for when it finally came out, we was like, no, this ain't the version, man. We, this ain't the one we want. Oh, they didn't messed it up. Oh, my God. I, you know, we couldn't understand and look at a, as one of my old friends would say, Donnie Colon, it's like he would always say to us, it's bigger than the neighborhood. It's bigger than the neighborhood, Mike. It's bigger than the neighborhood. So as youngsters, you couldn't think about bigger than the neighborhood. Man, this for my neighborhood, right? I don't care what, <laughs> what else going on outside here. But at that time, and maybe you can tell me a little bit about how you hooked up with Bam Bam as well, because Dance, Dance Your Mother was your debut as well. Right. And he had already sort of developed a sense of right. how is this track going to work right. elsewhere? Right. No, he heard it on KKC. He heard it. Farley heard it. Farley was trying to do what Farley do. And Tyree was like, no, 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 no. That, no, that's my man track. You can't mess with that. So Bam ended up hearing it's like, man, I want to. So Tyree called me like, man, Van Van want to put this out. I was like, who's Van Van? He's like, man, Van Van, he do records and da da He got this record label, Westbrook Records, and da da Okay. So I went to meet with him, and uh, we sat down, talked, chopped it up. I was like, cool, all right, let's do it. And he had his studio set up in his bedroom. He was at, living at his mom's at the time. So we actually did that record in his bedroom at his mom's house. 
And uh, he was teamed up with Sherman Burke. So Sherman was the one that put the money behind the project so that the record could get out. And uh, Bam's parents. So you were saying that you were playing it off the reel-to-reel prior to that, and then you went into his studio and did, right. a, did a version for the record. Right. It was, it, it was on cassette and reel, but it wasn't pressed up anything. It was just me always playing it. You know, we were... At that time, when Dance Your Mother was made, then Tyree and I were at a place called the High Society on the south side. That was on Halsted, like 77th, 76th in Halsted. That was Sam Chapman's night, and he had Tyree and I spending there. So Magic Feet came out not that long after that as well, right? That, right. Was, that was a pretty quick follow-up, and obviously a track that is enduring. I know that the late DJ Rashad kind of would speak about that track a lot. And I've heard an interesting story about that track as well. Like, I mean, I know that it samples Lil Lewis, but I've also heard that there was a drum machine that was going around at the time, like that was sort of being passed around. Can you speak about that? The one that Lewis was playing all the time was the one that we wanted and we could never get it. So we did our own versions. And the version that Lewis was playing and put out and put his name on it wasn't Lewis. That was Marshall Jefferson. So Marshall Jefferson is the one that actually did video clash. It was Lewis asked him, could he play it and play it at the Bismarck and things like that? And he ended up putting it out, and Marshall got no credit or nothing like that, you know. And, I know I've probably heard from it from Lewis, but yeah, that's the you know that's the truth. It's that wasn't Lewis's track. That was Marshall Jefferson did that track. And there was another track that was pretty similar as well, called the Hell's Franciscan track, like the Hell's track or something. Yeah, I mean, it was so many versions of that because I wasn't giving out my version. Ty wasn't giving out his version. This hurts who did theirs. wasn't giving out that so. You could walk in any part of the South Side or the West Side. You know, they said it's the South Side, but the West Side had a scene on the house as well. It's just the South Side was bigger because all of us, you know, Marshall was from the West Side. You know, everybody thought Marshall was from the South Side, but when Marshall was producing all of that stuff, his apartment was on the South Side. There's a... Photos, that's photos floating around. And Marshall got all this equipment set up. That was his apartment out west. So that's where we went and was trying to get stuff from Marshall that he was making before he was making it. Now, the drum machine story is it wasn't floating around. It's only one <laughs> Tyree, me, and Hugo had had it. But we just kept giving Marshall the run around. <laughs> like, Tyree got it, man. Tyree, oh, I have it. And then he'll call Tyree and Tyree will say, Hugo got it. Hugo, I don't have it. Mike got it. So we were trying to, we weren't trying to take the machine from him. You know, he let me use the 808 and it just, we just, I mean, we, we kept that going. <laughs> I'm sorry, MJ. We, had, we kept that going for like about five, six months. I mean, I guess I see things like that happen to this day, you know, mm. like it's like I want to get that back and the person <laughs> suddenly goes dark or something right. like that. It sort of gets to another thing that I wanted to talk about, you know, with tracks like Pressure Cooker, which is obviously inspired by Percolator and, right. you know, a lot of the flips you did is QX1 as well, where and Tyree's known for this as well, you know, in terms of like versions of Larry Heard tracks and stuff like this. Like what you're saying is that it comes out of DJing and having a special version and right. and then eventually these tracks get out there and they maybe tell a story of a certain time. Right. I know for me, Tyree, Hugo had a lot of great stuff. It, Hugo's sometimes hard to deal with. So he wants things done that way. And, and that's why if you hear the Freaky MF track, I say everybody thought I was saying it's a Michael thing. I was actually saying it's a Migo thing. And Migo was something that he, me and Hugo came up with that was we were difficult with 
women. So if you couldn't deal with the Michael thing, then you wouldn't understand. So Michael was actually M.I. for Mike and G.O. for Hugo. So it became Michael. It was a, it's a Michael thing. So that's the thing we would, they would always, you know, it was like if you could deal with us, then you good. I'm I'm with you 100%. But, you know, Hugo had, back to the story, Hugo had a lot of nice tracks. And I was going through old tape, cassette tapes. I got a couple bins that I posted up on my Facebook page. I found, a, like, I just found a ton of the, all the old stuff. A lot of old Armando, a lot of old Mike Dunn unreleased, Hugo unreleased, Tyree unreleased. Marshall Jefferson, Ten City. You know, I found like tons of that stuff. Lil Lewis, I I found mixes of I need a new dance beat that were never released. On that. Like I played one last night at the party. You can expect to hear from a hundred <laughs> labels after this exchange interview comes out, I think. I know, it's more about music, baby. It's more about <laughs> music. Course, Me and Mark Potts, baby, 100%. Absolutely. Uh, it's been been great dealing with them as well on this. But you brought up Armando, and I know that you were very, very close with him. Yeah. And do you want to speak a little bit about how you got to know him? Yeah, Armando was doing parties. Everybody thought Armando was like, Armando made records. But Armando was more of like a super promoter on the parties. So, like when we met, it was further his career fires on the putting out records. Land of Confusion, the baseline was actually a baseline that was already in the in the 303. He borrowed Hula Mahomes, he borrowed that 303, and the baseline was in there. And he pulled it up. He's like, oh, man, I'm going to use this. So that's basically how the the 303 baseline came about. That was a, The baseline was actually programmed by Hula, Hula Mahone. Armando just, you know, but back then we were just, we were borrowing each other's stuff because nobody had a complete studio. It was like, I got a 707, he got an 808, he got a TV 303, he got a keyboard, he got a sequencer. He, So it was like, man, let me see your sequencer so I can do this, or let me see your your 303 so I can do that, or let me... So we were basically passing equipment around each other, you know, until we were able to get up to where we had enough stuff to not do that anymore, you know. Mondo, basically did tracks and a lot of the stuff, Armando would just be like, Armando was the mastermind behind it. He was like, okay, I want a track that sounds like Todd Terry. So that's when I did the 100% dissing you. But Todd took it as though we were dissing him. We weren't dissing him, it was just the sample that I picked out of there. It was. Lolita was like, I'm going to diss you right now. So that's why we was calling 100% diss you, not because we were trying to diss Todd by doing the same sound that he was doing. So, because him and Amando were about to fight and win a music conference. You know, they saw each other and Todd was not happy. Like, man, you trying to diss, you trying to diss me on the... Mondo, man, you know what's man? What you talking about, man? I, I ain't trying to just, what, you know, it got real thick. But as he explained to him, he was like, man, we wasn't trying to diss you. We was, we loved that, that, you know, check this out. You know, that's crazy. So basically it was more of like when we did things, we weren't doing things to, this people, we were doing them to big up them like it was like an honor to, you know. Some people would get in your ear and start pumping you up. Like, oh man, they trying to, no, 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 they trying to, no, no. So, you know, you get a little swole, but that's as far as it went. They squashed it and the whole nine like that, but it wasn't ever, do you hear me guys, ever a diss toward 
Todd Terry. It was more of us being, you know, Mondo said he wanted something that sounded like the Todd Terry joint because the joint was huge. So Armando being the promoter he is, or he was, he wanted something to come out on his EP that sounded like that. Glad we got that cleared up. Yeah. So at this point, you know, you're starting to be internationally recognized. It's gone beyond the neighborhood at this point. Like, when did yeah. it get to that stage where you were beginning to travel, where you were hearing the tracks out? I mean... When Tyree and them went overseas, I'm like, man, they over there selling our records like crazy, man. Because we didn't know nothing about, we didn't know when Tyree and Eddie and them went over there to do the, the tour. They came back like, man, they ripping us off, dog. Like, what? Yeah, man, our records are selling like crazy. We big over there, man. Like, I love them to death, so I don't want to seem like I'm dissing them, but Rocky and them would never let us know that what was going on over there. We were shielded from that. So the only way that the guys and girls from Europe knew how to get in touch with us was through the labels. There wasn't any faces to us yet. It was just names. And boom, they'd run into a big brick wall right there. So we didn't know anything about it until Tyree and them went over there and started touring that. Man, we like rock stars. Like, what, huh? That, that, yeah, man, they went to record store. Records is, you know, at that time it wasn't consolidated. It wasn't a euro. Everybody had steal their own money, you know. He's like, yeah, man, went in Germany and it was this much, went into London and it was these many pounds, went in the... I'm like, wow. So we started, you know, we started trying to figure out how to get in touch with those people. That led directly to starting your own label as yeah. well? Yeah, that was the kickoff. And who helped us with that vision was Ray Barney. So one stop or yeah. So Ray Barney had a one stop and and his dad before he turned it over completely to Ray Jr. You know, that's how Byron and Marshall and all them got to put their records out with the Bright Star and the things like that. And then we en ended up like, man, we want to have our own labels and da da So Ray Barney was the one who facilitated that and gave us, you know, where we could do our own labels and press it up for us and things like that. We just couldn't trust tracks, you know, not only for the business end, but the pressing, because, you know, you would get records that were moving side to side and you're like, hold on, is my turntable? What the, f I get the you see the needle. <laughs> You're like, what the f is wrong with this rag? Or you look at it like, hold on, it's, that's some paper in the fucking vinyl. <laughs> Sorry to be cursing. But you, well, you know, it's like you find anything with a tracks rag. It was, it, it, was, it was incredible. It was like, man. Like, and I saw it with my own two eyes. This ain't nothing I heard. This ain't nothing somebody told me. This, no, I saw it with my own Tools. I saw records getting broke up. I saw the stacks of K-Tail records. I saw the stacks of all the records getting ready to be broken down, to be, you know, melted down and re... It's like, God, no, we can't do nothing over here. You started your own label with Armando, and you had music with Armando, and then you had your own label as well, correct? Right. Yeah. See, Warehouse was Armando's. Dad's mother was mine. And music was ours. So we kind of had it like that way because that this is a story probably never been told or if it's been told, it's been told not the right way. What happened was the reason we separated them like that after a while is because Armando brought French Kiss to me. Like, man, I'm going to put this out, man. I'm going to put this out, man. It's cold. And I was like, man, I fucking hate that record, man. That record sucks, man. 
No, man, we not putting that record out, man. I, he's like, man, no, the record's good. The record's good. I was like, no, man, no, no. Look at it, man. It's slowing down. What? What is that? I'm snapping just because of my little thing with Lewis that I'm not thinking with a business head. I'm thinking with my heart. And lo and behold, so Lewis ended up putting it out himself. Epic licensed it or it just yeah. used... Yeah. Incredibly massive record. Right. I mean, like, that's the one thing in my music career that, I mean, everything happened for a reason, but just looking back, I was like, oh, no, that wasn't a good decision, Mike. That was the one that got away. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and away it got. <laughs> so one of the things that you said was, you know, on those first trips to Europe, Tyree was beginning to understand that the shops, the culture, they knew how to get Chicago records, but they didn't really know who you guys were. And, you know, you didn't exactly make it easy for people either because, you know, you're known as Funky Brother, All right. the Jazz Man, the MD Connection, <laughs> the MD3, MDZ, the Rhythm Composers, QX1, Funky People. So... Why were you just making a ton of music then? Was it sort of a neighborhood thing in terms of nicknames? What? Yeah, I was just all, and still to this day I do it, and I don't know why, but I still to this day I do it. I got the green tea and uh, the house in the HD. That's me and Terry. It's just I was always in love with aliases. That was the way that I could do a whole lot of different music and be somebody else. Mike Dunn didn't have the same sound as MD3. And MD3 didn't have the same sound as the rhythm composer. And the rhythm composer, I could be whoever I wanted to be when I changed my name to that to that pseudo. You know what I'm saying? I was whoever I wanted to be. Like, and still to this day, like, more psychological with me than physical, but it's just when I want to change, like Mr. 69, that was, it's like a movie and it's like an actor getting into character. So for me, that's how I got into character to produce songs. I, you know, this was my role. Okay, uh, okay, cool. I, that's who I got to be now. So let's talk a little bit about that then, because the projects do have a specific sound. Right. So what were you going for with, say, the QX1 records that just got reissued? Because it seems like that's a really deep, sort of pad-heavy sound. Right. The QX1 was more like Marshall Jefferson, because Marshall Jefferson used to use the uh, Yamaha QX1 sequencer. So that's how that project got that name. QX1 was more of the Marshall Jefferson side. Well, then now you got to tell me about bowel movements. I mean, uh, th I yeah, yeah, but does somebody say that? I don't know what the hell that is. <laughs> I never made a track called Bowel Movement. I mean, I've I've done some raunchy tracks, but Bowel Movement is not a name I'm gonna come up with. So I don't know who did that. Now somebody just tagged my name on that, and I have nothing to do with it. I guess it's sort of a scavenger hunt sometimes. So right. people people are looking all over the place. And uh, do you feel like people had trouble keeping up sometimes, as opposed to Tyree? Tyree's going to be Tyree, whether he's doing right. Hip House, whether he's whatever right. project he's doing is going to be Tyree, Tyree Cooper. Right. But the thing with that is you get labeled. So... My longevity in the game was that I never got labeled because you couldn't catch up with what I was doing. Like, okay, who is this? That's Mike Dunn. Okay, who is that? That's Mike Dunn. Well, who is that? That's Mike Dunn. About time that you don't or do like it, it's, it's too late. It's, uh, you, it's already, it's me. Yeah. So you can't come up with these preconceived notions about oh, I don't like the track because I don't like Mike Dunn or that, this, da, da, da. No, you just gonna, you, you, you're gonna like it or not like it because it's good or it's not good. Not because I did it. And at the time, it's sort of really purple period of 
early to mid 90s you were making a ton of music uh, that's when your only LP as Mike Dunn came out right. as well correct and what was your sort of touring schedule like at the time uh, it was crazy by the way that was I was born to be house that that album that was, that was a rush disaster man <laughs> but anyway yeah I mean the schedule was me and Amando we were like all over the place and it was, you know, we were doing the Radical Fear tours. It's me, Felix, Roy Davis, Armando. We were staying in Germany, and we stayed in Germany for over a month, just touring. And uh, that's one of the reasons I had pulled back some because it was just so much on the body. Getting on the plane, getting off the plane, getting on the plane, getting off the plane. You know, it was sometimes it, it just got to a point where I felt like, I don't know if other DJs, U.S. DJs was going through this, but I just felt that it was a time that I wasn't being respected enough. I would be sitting at the airport waiting for somebody to pick me up for an hour, hour and a half, or they would put me on flights that were fucking take me 14 hours to get there, seven hours here, lay over three hours here, take that over there, and then take that train. And I, no, I felt like, you know, I had put so much into the game. And that's when I started doing my hip-hop stuff with, you know, with Puff. So once that deal went through, I basically shut down. My last gig in Europe was... Before I came back for to do a little thing with DJ Deep, my last gig was in Germany and... Uh, what year was that? I think I got the Bad Boy deal in 2000. So it's been like 15 years. Wow. Yeah. And so this was when Puff Daddy signed a deal with Dunn Ruffin yeah. Entertainment. Can you speak right. about how that came about? Yeah, I had rappers. I was producing. It was really only had one artist, and then I pulled other artists in, but I had to start a swing, and we were doing stuff together. And uh, my manager at the time, Eric the Wiz, he took some stuff out to New York, and somehow Demo left the hands of who Wiz gave it to and got into the hands of guy who took it to Puff, which was Craig Boogie. And Craig Boogie was like from Mount Vernon, so he was, you know, he was Tyson's boy, uh, Mike Tyson's boy, Heavy D, all them knew Craig Boogie. And then, you know, Boogie was tight with Puff, so he took it over to Puff, and Puff heard him and was like, man, I, I need to talk to them guys, man. Woo, 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 man. And we got a call, and it was like, yo, First we got a call from Craig Boogie. He he hunted us down, and then then the next thing you know, phone rings. Man, yo, what's up, Playboy? Man, it's Puff. Hello? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> what's up, man? <laughs> yeah, hey, Playboy, I'm in a meeting right now. I'm doing some things, but hold on tight. Don't go nowhere, Playboy. I'm going to hit you back. I was like, cool, Puff. All right, cool. Then I doof. Hey, yo, hey, hey, I'm going running around the whole studio, man. The Puff is just on the phone. Hey, get out of here, man. It's, I felt like this was a, a episode of, I mean, not an episode, but a, a scene from the Coming to America. Oh, man, you don't know no more. Luther the King. You know, I was like, man, that was Puff on the phone. Call back, and there you have it, man. It was, it was just that simple, but then things got haywire because that was the same time he was going through the the trial with the shooting and Jennifer and Sean and the whole show. It just got all discombobulated. There's a couple of things that I could have done differently that should have been done differently that would have probably kept the deal. But, hey. Tough game, major label rap production. Hey, man. That's, and, and now the way this sounds now, I just, that's what made me like, okay, man. I need to go back home. <laughs> right there, I was like, okay, I don't need a ton of money, man. I just need to be comfortable. That was the turning point of me coming back to house. It was just like, just want to be comfortable, man. 
and happy. Happy and comfortable in that order. So what was it about that world that made you feel uncomfortable, that made you feel like you weren't at home? Just all of the, the BS that come with it, man. You know, you'll hear tons of stories and see tons of stories and people be posting kind of wild, little Bill Hiccup stuff. But I gave up. And I gave up because I felt like I had made this money and I had all this jewelry and I had all this, you know, big fancy car and all the and, uh, and clothes and things like I made under all that under you know basically false pretenses I was doing something I really didn't love I was doing it because I just want the money I could do both you know I technically that I can produce hip-hop R&B and all that you know I had success in it so I could do it but there's a difference. I'm doing that to pay the bills and live the lavish life and all that. Da, da, da. House, I do it because I love it. I don't care if I make a dime off this. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's real talk. At the same time, I got a whole lot of money, but I ain't happy. House, I ain't got a whole lot of money, but I'm happy. So as you get older, you like, okay, what's more important? You know, as you're younger, you ask that question, you know what I mean, man, I money. But when you get some meat on your head and you get some miles up under your feet, you realize that happiness is what's most important to me in my life, whether I'm super rich or super broke. The happiness falls first. You know, so that's what I'm happy now. I'm in the studio. I'm happy. I'm, I produce like I'm a youngin again. You know, I'm in there. I'm inspired. Like a lot of stuff I hear today, I'm, I'm inspired. Like it's a lot of stuff that I hear that the younger cats are doing. And a lot of the stuff they're doing is the stuff that they look up to me and others like for making. So... It's funny how the clock works. You know, the, the clock is a powerful thing. So me looking up to Frank, which is Frankie, Frankie Knuckles, and uh, to, for, for, you know what I'm saying, for, for me looking up to Frank, and now that he's gone, now there's kids looking up to me like I was looking up to Frank. And that's what I mean by the clock. The clock is powerful because, you know, when they tell you, young guys, that time waits for no one, please believe that. No one waits for no one. I think we should end on that note. Thank you so much for uh, coming in, Mike. Really appreciate talking Man. to you and appreciate the insight and sort of true testimonial as well of the Chicago house. Man, it's, hey, that's why they call me the truth, baby, I guess, because I got to speak it, baby. I got to speak my mind. I got to speak the truth, and I try to give as much knowledge as I can. I want to leave, like, the younger cats coming up in the game with this. Someone's trying to give you knowledge on the game. Let them give you knowledge on the game because you don't want to be – an artist or producer or DJ or anything like that that's being spoon-fed. And what I mean by that is you have to wait on somebody else to make moves for you. You don't ever want to put yourself in that position. For me, I sat around Marshall. I sat around Tyree. I sat around, you know, whether good or bad, I sat around a lot of people for the knowledge. Because, as the word says, you know, I can give you this fish and you'll eat for a day. Or I can teach you how to fish and you can eat for a lifetime. So, knowledge always reigns supreme. Get the knowledge. Do what you do. Stay true to yourself. If that's what you believe in, then 
you go for it. Eventually, somebody's going to hear it the way that you hear it. You know, don't feel like you got to run with the pack. You got to produce, like, the pack in order to get heard or be heard or be seen or get gigs or things. Do you. And that's what people always tell me. Like, man, you got to – I know when it's a Mike Dunn track because you got a different sound than – I'm always thinking of something different. And basically how you come up with your own sounds is you just take a little bit from everybody that you like. <laughs> basically, ain't no science to it. Oh, man, I didn't came up with this. No, you haven't. The wheel was built a whole long time ago. Though. <laughs> ain't nothing you got to do with the wheel. <laughs> So basically, you just do, you know, you take a little bit of what you like from every artist and you implement that into your production. And just make sure that your end of it is more prevalent than the other ends that you're taking. Say what? I don't wanna be a freak. Uh-huh. But I can't help myself. Say what? Say what? I don't wanna be a freak. I don't wanna be but a freak. But I can't help myself. Say what? Say what? I don't wanna be a freak. I don't wanna be a freak. But I can't help myself. Oh, oh. I don't wanna be a freak. I don't wanna be a freak. But I can't help myself. I can't help it. I don't wanna be a freak. I don't wanna be a freak. But I can't help myself. I can't help it. I don't wanna be a freak. I don't wanna be a freak. But I can't help myself. But I can't help it. I don't wanna be a freak. I don't wanna be a freak. But I can't help myself. But I can't help it. I don't wanna be a freak. I don't wanna be a freak, but I can't help myself. I can't help it. I don't wanna be a freak. I don't wanna be a freak, but I can't help myself. I can't help it. I don't wanna be a freak. I don't wanna be a freak, but I can't help myself. I can't help it. I don't wanna be a freak. I don't wanna be a freak, but I can't help myself. I can't help it. 